Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Hey, Modern Therapists, we're so excited to offer the opportunity for one unit of continuing education for this podcast episode. Once you've listened to this episode, to get CE credit, you just need to go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, register for your free profile, purchase this course, pass the post-test, and complete the evaluation. Once that's all completed, you'll get a CE certificate in your profile, or you can download it for your records. For a current list of our CE approvals, check out moderntherapistcommunity.com. Once again, hop over to moderntherapistcommunity.com for one CE once you've listened. Woohoo! Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Renoy, and this is the podcast for therapists where we talk about the things that go on in our practices, the ways that we interact with clients in the world. And this is another one of our continuing education eligible episodes. And we are leaning into ethics mostly in this one and <laughs> really around the idea of autonomy when it comes to patients opting into treatments. And I have to really kind of give credit to my students at California State University Northridge for inspiring this episode in being able to actually dive into some stuff and be able to look at what is, in fact, autonomy. And this being one of the principal ethics of Bochamp and Childress when it comes to healthcare ethics, autonomy and what people are allowed to do. They get to be involved in the decision-making process. But Katie, as my friend, colleague, co-host, I'm going to always start our episodes with a question to you. Why don't you <laughs> tell me what your idea of autonomy is, especially when it comes to ethics and mental health care? Well, that's a, it's a very deep sigh to start kind of a, <laughs> a big conversation here. Yes, yes, a big sigh. I think when I think about client or patient autonomy, there's such a complexity to how I look at it that I don't know that my short answer will be uh, helpful, but it's this combination of a client who's very informed and has a whole picture of what it is to do treatment with me and what the treatment I'm recommending is, and then from there being able to make a decision and step forward. I think that gets com you know complicated by the client's understanding of treatment. It's com you know generally not just with me, and by a lot of other things and how they enter the treatment relationship. But for me, I feel like autonomy is not absolute because you can't be autonomous unless you know what you're deciding. I mean, we have a whole episode on decision-making and, and how complex I think decision-making is. So so I think I'm potentially unique in that because I think there's, there's some folks I've talked with who believe autonomy is the clients make the decision no matter what. And I think that's too simple. And that's really part of what the discussion with my students has been it, to be fair to my students, they're in their first semester of their grad program, but a lot of the things that we've been talking about in the law and ethics class that I teach is when given the chance to give clients the ability to make decisions for themselves, one of the things that I've noticed my students this semester doing is always giving into what the client suggests no matter what. 
And at some points in these conversations, I'm always like, but we are the professionals. We have information that clients may not. We have skills that we are training students to have, hopefully the professionals in our field have, in order to actually do professional therapy, that by making the decision to not actually use any of these skills, we're actually abdicating all of our responsibilities to give over to the clients. And we become nothing more than very glorified cheerleaders that are able to provide billing documentation to insurance companies. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of different places we can abdicate this responsibility. I mean, I think opting into treatment initially, I think when there's some sort of a, a rift or a mistake, we have a whole episode on mistakes or, or different things that happen, there's a breach if you don't try to process it or try to have the conversation to understand it and, and make repair. I think there's so many different places that we can just say, well, the client doesn't want to do this or, oh, the client wants to do this instead or, or whatever it is without actually getting into the discussion. It feels like there's a, a complex picture here that I think is hard for new clinicians to to get their heads around. And even other folks who are are in a space of trying to understand the difference between kind of a paternalistic savior therapist dictating to a, a client versus a an informed professional working collaboratively with a client. I mean, and, and I guess I got off track with the different spaces where we can abdicate responsibility and and oversell uh, client autonomy, but I'm sure we'll get into it. So where do you want to start with this? Because it feels like this is a big topic that we can go in a lot of different areas. You know, it's funny that you're saying that this is a big topic because this is actually much bigger than even I imagined when I was like, <laughs> we should do an episode on autonomy. <laughs> and I think that if anything, this is almost kind of passed over as being maybe not big enough in the way that we actually think about this with clients. I think that a lot of law and ethics lectures kind of basically boil down to, all right, we have this principal ethic of autonomy uh, alongside beneficence, non-malfeasance, all of the, the Bochamp and Childress great stuff. But a lot of autonomy just kind of gets boiled down to a couple of lines, usually, as far as like, we need to provide informed consent to clients, we need to have them be involved in the decision making process, it needs to be done in a language that they understand. And then we kind of go from there. Then then let's get into, you know, more of the specific ethics and kind of fine tuning things. But I think that a lot of these principal ethics get lost as far as they're they're not, you know, there's not an APA code that's like client autonomy. There is not a NASW code or an ACA code or AMFT code that's just like client autonomy. A lot of these are things that are in the preamble that I always have to re remind people, like just because there's not like a 1.1 on this doesn't mean that it's less important. Like it's actually more important. It's higher up on the webpage. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's global. It's the preamble. It's it's the basis for all that we do. But I think actually understanding what autonomy is, I, I've not like until we started preparing for this episode, I hadn't really thought about it in a really deeper way. And considering you being my friend and how much you are just subjected to my <laughs> random ethical musings and deep thoughts, that to me maybe suggests that the larger mental health field probably also doesn't think about this in, in this way. And so I'm pulling heavily from an article by Ian Arietta Valero for this episode. This is called Autonomies in Interaction. Dimensions of Patient Autonomy and Non-Adherence to Treatment. And this is a 2019 article from Frontiers in Psychology. Kind of from the get-go in this, what this article describes is that, yes, Bochamp and Childress really come about this. And within the original Bochamp and Childress writings, we have to have two conditions that are essential for autonomy. And that is liberty, which is the independence for controlling influences, and agency, which is the capacity for intentional action. Now, historically, and I think in our discussions here so far, 
we have leaned as a field, as a healthcare field, a lot more on the former, the idea of liberty and the independence for controlling influences, rather than focusing on agency, which is the capacity for intentional action. I think that a lot of discussions around this kind of stuff picture highly informed, educated clients who are coming in and are able to speak verbosely about what it is that they want as far as their treatment. We assume that people have the capacity for understanding things. Therefore, we grant liberty. We we grant the options for people to opt in and out of things. But how do we actually start to think about client capacity in these discussions? For example, if you are a therapist who is working with small children, you automatically are already kind of watering down what the language is as far as what you're doing, because you understand that a child has a different capacity to be able to understand and make decisions about what treatment is going to be. With teenagers, you might present it in a more mature or adult-like sort of way, and with many adults, you may do so in the same way. But when you are faced with adults who have things like severe mental illness, you may also even naturally just kind of start to explain things in a way that the client understands. What I'm suggesting, though, is that there's those clients who might come in asking for a treatment hey, I heard about CBT, I want CBT, where we don't actually go into any sort of depth as far as, do you have the capacity to know what you're asking for? Or did big CBT just do a really good job of marketing (laughs) and convince you that this is the treatment that you need? Well, do you think that folks are really not giving any information? Because I I feel like my natural response when somebody says, I heard that, you know, and it's usually some you know, blank CBT. So C, you know, D, C, you know, whatever. I don't even know that I can think of the names right now, but, but I usually go into, well, here's where we've already used CBT and this is what CBT looks like. Is that something that you're interested in? Or I could say, Hey, we can try a session where I put some more CBT in here and then we can decide if this is for you. I feel like I, I'm, I, I don't see this as a, an issue for myself, but it seems like you're concerned that folks are going like, okay, I'll just switch to CBT. Or I don't do CBT, let me refer you out. And I think it starts even before that. Okay. I, th- I think that this starts in your initial consultations with clients in being able to describe, here's what I do. Here's the theory that I work from. Here's how that applies to what you are talking about. So if you are coming in as a brand new client, you should walk out of the first session with an understanding, here's what a CBT framework is. This is how looking at core beliefs where those core beliefs are, the types of interventions that we might do in doing thought tracking and changing things. Clients should have a rudimentary understanding of what the procedure of CBT is. So that way they are fully informed to be able to opt into that. Now, sure, kind of kind of like you, when I have clients who mid-treatment are like, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot more about CBT. Can we do CBT? And I explain to them, okay, here's what CBT would look like in a shift for the kind of work, just like you outlined. And yeah. some of them go, oh, no, I don't actually want that. What I want is this other thing. And yeah, yeah. So, so- but, but you're saying that that when someone comes into treatment at the beginning, you need to fully explain how you work. Yes. And, and and I think I do that. You're saying you don't think that people do that. What do you think people are doing instead? I think when clients come in and they say, I have a problem. And I think a lot of people are shortening that conversation down to, yeah, I practice from CBT. Let's dive into it. Ah, got it. So you're thinking that they just comply. And I, and I think we have a whole episode on self-diagnosis, you know, kind of the TikTok diagnosis thing. But if somebody comes in there and says, I have this diagnosis and I'd like this treatment, as we talked about in that episode, there's, there needs to be further clarification because you don't know that they actually have that diagnosis and you also don't know that they actually want that treatment. And so clarifying and digging in deeper would be more what we're talking about so they can opt in and out to something that's known versus what they've learned about on social media. Right. And I think that that's where in this article by Arietta Valero points out that 
what we tend to do is we tend to have this idea of a principle of respect for autonomy rather than the principles that underlie it. That, well, you might be a listener here who's kind of saying, you're saying a lot of things, but ultimately we're still trying to get people back to having that liberty option to make it, make make the decisions to do that. But we first have to make sure that people have the agency to make that decision in the first place. You know, if the gold standard of, you know, treatment for anxiety, let's say, is CBT, probably is. I mean, CBT works pretty well for anxiety. But uh, yeah, but it does, but it's also big CBT. So let's let's not let's just use it as an example and not try to validate the example. <laughs> so you know, if you have a seven-year-old who's coming in, you should, you know, still talk about like, here's how how we work with anxiety. We practice on being anxious. We look at our thoughts when we're anxious and how we can look at other kinds of evidence. You you're still describing CBT, but one of the ways that I you know, really kind of put this out there to a lot of clinicians to help understand this is if you are going to therapy yourself and, and you should be, can, can <laughs> do, do you know what kind of theory your therapist is working from? And if mm. you can't identify that even as a professional with your own therapist, this needs to be a more explicit part of the conversation. That feels like it may be orientation specific though how much how much uh, transparency how much collaboration all of those things like it feels like there is still a little bit of a treatment orientation question here on how how collaborative how informative am i am, am i with my client it feels like ethically there's a further step but i'm thinking about folks who are more psychodynamic or who have more of this kind of integrative or eclectic style, it feels like that there may be a, a, an element of this where they're like, but then that ruins it. <laughs> like that ruins my treatment thing if they know exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Right. Is that autonomy then? Because really I don't know. That's why I wanted to bring it up because I feel like there's, there's an argument and, and we can go into the, you know, kind of the make, making pretzels and, and, and forming these things to say, well, well, but this is, they're opting in to working with me and this is how I work. Then, then I say, this is not autonomy if people don't know what they're yeah. opting into. When people tell me I'm an eclectic therapist, I go, how do you decide which eclectic? Like, like, <laughs> Oh, you know, I'm I'm really reactive in the room. Okay, what kinds of things are you reactive to? Like, yeah, are, yeah, it's just you... getting really good at describing how you work so that folks can opt in or out. Right, because inherently in what you're describing is paternalism. It's yeah. I know better than my client, therefore I have information that they don't, and me sharing that information with them takes away my power you're taking <laughs> you're, you're, I think you're, that's you're how not... so many people worked for, for so long i think that there are still some of us trained in more of this blank slate you know i'm just coming in here and i'm going to respond in the room and i'm going to have these interventions that are behind the curtain and i i i don't appreciate that i just am raising it as as a, a place to kind of get into the nuance of this because i think a lot of folks are maybe not doing it not from a place of a lack of transparency or or a lack of client autonomy i don't think they've thought about it that way but i don't know i mean i'm i'm not those folks but i'm always i'm always pulling back the curtain and saying you know i'm not supposed to say this but i'm proud of you <laughs> they're like why aren't you supposed to say that because generally as therapists this is how we're supposed to operate but this is why i'm saying this because i i need you to know this right like i'm super transparent my clients know what i'm doing and sometimes it may uh, negatively impact the <laughs> negatively impact the effectiveness of the intervention, but I feel like I have to be transparent so they know what's going on. But I think there's folks who are not that way. I don't think that you should have, like, there shouldn't be many people left in our field who are not affected or were practicing well before the 1972 U.S. Court of Appeals <laughs> in the District Court. This is Canterbury versus Spence. And the ultimate judgment out of this is that consent was largely glossed over by... Before the 70s. Before, you know, it, it took somebody who was in the hospital getting a surgery on their on their spine 
falling out of bed in the hospital and injuring themselves more and becoming paralyzed before we put the very important word informed into <laughs> informed consent. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's horrible. And it's it's shocking because I think it is informed consent just feels like it's a part of what we do. But I think actually thinking about what does true informed consent mean, I don't know that we've, I've not been part of those conversations, I guess. You know, I hear hear my students from time to time being like, you know, there's a lot of literature on don't sleep with your clients. Like, was this such a big problem that all of these tomes of papers have to be written on it? And I go, yeah, it used to be such a big problem. And we've done a good job by talking about yeah. it enough. And it still doesn't prevent people from doing it. But I think that this was such a problem in, you know, prior to this decision that we've almost lost touch for what the importance of informed consent is. Good job as far as recognizing, yes, we need to give clients more informed consent, but are we actually providing enough informed consent? And here's kind of the, the challenge to this. If people's mental illnesses or their reasons for coming to therapy doesn't actually give them the capacity to understand what they're consenting to, is there any space for autonomy in the first place? I think this is the crux of the issue for me because there's a judgment that you're making. And I think it's an accurate judgment, not judgment in like, oh, you're so judgy, but judgment in that you're evaluating, right? Right. That someone with certain diagnoses may not be able to understand what they're opting in and out of, right? I think there are also elements to it. And, and maybe this is just getting more detailed in what you're already saying, but folks who their general coping is avoidant and they, you know, you get to a hard spot in treatment and they want to opt out, right? Or, you know, there's those types of things where there's even more nuanced pictures, folks who are generally, quote unquote, you know, high functioning. I don't like that word, but I'll use it here just as a, as a placeholder. But I think there's that that element of someone generally functioning well in their life, but their tendency is to avoid treatment gets hard, they opt out and we just say, okay, well, that's client autonomy and that we don't try to do the work to bridge that. And so it's not even, I don't understand, it's that clinically there is an issue here that I need help overcoming to be able to engage in the work that I need to do. And so there's, there's all of those things, those assessments of can this client opt in in a healthful manner, healthy manner, and adhere, comply, whatever the right word is, to treatment, and can they understand it? And then there's this other element, this the, the pesky little piece of bias of are we assuming whether or not they can understand and comply? Is there Are there cultural differences that suggest that we're going to save them or be a savior? Are there gender differences that, that think, you know, like this person's not going to understand because of X or Y? I mean, I think there's there's the reasons behind the informed consent laws in the first place, which was that this paternalistic figure was telling you what you needed for treatment. And then there's the other elements, which is you're coming to treatment for a reason and there are going to be hiccups that get in the way of treatment. And that's part of the work. And so we have to, to hold that. So it becomes this complex picture of why do I feel like this person either knows well enough and, and I abdicate the, the clarification and follow through or why do I think they don't? And what are the pieces of that? And then, and, you know, we, we have a lot of episodes on kind of intersectionality and being present and understanding, you know, power, privilege, you know, all of those things. But I feel like there's, this isn't just an easy like, hey, you're the, the, the professional, you need to step forward a bit more because we need to say, what are we stepping forward to do? Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. 
They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. I'm thinking of the interview that we did with Senator Henry Stern and kind of talking about this. And I think a lot of the questions that you're talking about have tried to be ironed out legally as far as like, when is a person at a place of grave disability where decisions are made for them? Sure. And you and I are more familiar with California and some of the stuff that Senator Stern was talking about in in that episode is that the laws in California are written to such an extent of patient autonomy that it's very difficult to kind of get people into treatment unless they are at the absolute, you know, most egregious end of not being able to care for themselves. And it's freer in other states. Now, as far as being able to make decisions for ourselves in general, I think that it's great to give people the most autonomy over themselves. But when we look at it from a healthcare perspective kind of thing, we have to be careful to not equate autonomy with autonomous decision making. And, you got to explain that a little bit more. And good, because I was going to anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so that is the capacity to understand the information and to make voluntary decisions on it. And this is why we look at things like severe mental illness. That's what um, autonomous decision-making is, is if somebody is not able to opt into something, is mental health treatment, if they're not able to understand the information about what the treatment is going to be, can we actually give them the autonomy to opt out of the treatment? In other words, if their capacity is so low to not even understand how what is happening to them could benefit them, that beneficence part of principal ethics, are we just avoiding doing harm because they say no? Like if Senator Stern was talking about going to homeless people with severe mental illness on the streets and being able to say, hey, would you like to opt into this treatment? If they don't understand what that treatment could do to benefit them, are they actually able to make an autonomous decision? If they don't understand, do they have the right to autonomy? That comes to an evaluation or assessment. Is this person competent or not? There are things in the law, but there's also ways that people understand it, right? And then there's also, how do we know how informed they are? How do we know whether or not they're able to make a decision? If we disagree with their decision, are we in a, in a biased kind of way going to lean toward they don't or they do understand, right? And so there's that, that element of even with the laws stating what it is and, and having a, a way to describe that at the highest level with severe mental illness, you know, harm to others, harm to self, you know, grave disability, there's still a lot of interpretation and the letter of the law versus the spirit of a law. But when we're thinking about folks who are not at that level, you know, we have a whole episode on, you know, is therapy the open of the masses? I mean, this is a pretty old one at this point, but we have a lot of impact on how we frame the information that we're giving. We have a lot of impact in how we, you know, kind of where we stop in the, the, the decision-making process. We stop when they make the decision we want versus we stop when, the, when we feel that com- confident that they're making the decision they want. And so I don't think this is simple by any stretch. I feel like it's it's something where, especially in some of these tougher cases, this is where consultation is needed to make sure that you're actually aware of whatever bias you're holding and whatever decision you're pushing, if if you are. This is from, is autonomy relevant to psychiatric ethics? So I get that this is more to the medication end of things. This is from Matthews 2007. And... Out of this comes the question, first and foremost, if we're we're trying to respect autonomy, 
is there anything there to respect if autonomy doesn't exist in the first place? And who assesses if autonomy exists? That's that, the, that's that, the part I'm talking that, about. That would that would be the whole point of healthcare professionals is you, you that's your job to assess it is and sure. that's where going back to this article by Arietta Valero helps to look at different domains of what autonomy actually is, and that you might have autonomy in some areas. You might have autonomy of mind, but your body may not uh, allow things. Somebody who's um, paralyzed from the neck down, for example. Sure, sure. Um, So you would have autonomy of mind, but you might not have autonomy of body there. And so some of the categories that were looked at in this is uh, some different dimensions. So the first one is the decisional dimension. This is the patient's ability to make free and therapeutically informed decisions, such as capacity to plan, sequence, and perform tasks related to the management of something like a mental illness. So think of you know clients that may be more impacted by their condition who in the moment, they can sure repeat back exactly what you've told to them. And then five minutes later, they're like, I have no idea what we just talked about. Okay. Let alone the ability to then go and have the executive functioning ability to go and implement that in between sessions. So if that kind of an autonomy is missing, we may have to actually, I don't know, step up and be mental health care professionals in addressing how to best treat somebody in that position. If the work that you're trying to do isn't able to be carried out, you would have kind of an ethical responsibility to do your job and incorporate other aspects to help them be able to follow through on their treatment. What do you mean by that? Because I feel like there are also laws, and maybe this is more of a California thing, where if there's not a dedicated decision maker by nature, it defaults back to the client who may not have this decisional or maybe even executive, executive. autonomy. Yeah, uh, I I added in the executive dimension there. That's the yeah. ability to follow through. So, but if uh, if 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 the law says they do, but you think they don't, I mean, we do get more complicated here. <laughs> And this is where hopefully you are explaining to your clients, because ultimately what you have is first a responsibility to restore people's ability to make these autonomous decision things. And and that's really, I think, where I see a lot of hesitation from people just kind of passing on their legal responsibility to others is like, let's stabilize. So that way you can make this decision. But at some point, we do have to be able to step in and be the educated professional who is licensed by the state in order to make these decisions. That's what a license is, is that you've demonstrated a competence to be able to step in in situations where you are required to do so. I agree. And I also am looking at the other element of folks who have stepped into that role too quickly. So I think there's folks who have abdicated too quickly. And I think that's more the conversation that we're talking about today. But I think some people abdicate it so quickly because of a historical lens of folks who have stepped forward too much to medicate without permission, to institutionalize without permission. And, and there's that that element of how do we make sure that we're, they're wa- we're walking that line or, or staying on that tightrope? Because I feel like there are folks who would benefit and maybe need to be, quote unquote, pushed into treatment of some sort, whether it's, you know, kind of inpatient or medication but there's also an element of there are folks who shouldn't be that have in the past. And so how do we make sure we're not stepping across that line and in, in adhering to our responsibility? So uh, I'm, I'm going to give you credit for what I'm going to put in, in here. <laughs> the, because right. th- this is the example that you gave before we started recording. But let's talk about like eating disorder clients who don't maintain enough body weight to be biologically functional like in an outpatient kind of setting at what point do you say i have to withhold treatment because you are not functionally able to biologically take care of yourself 
we we do these kinds of things like you know there's kind of this decision making process that we have to go through in order to be like all right when is it appropriate to say i am no longer going to see you because you are not adherent to treatment but part of the decision making process that we do on that is going back to these dimensions from uh, Arietta Valero is looking at like the functional dimension, which he defines as functions and tasks that can be carried out by the statistical majority of people. So there's the using an eating disorder client as an example here. There's the ones that are kind of restricting a little bit, but they're still eating somewhat regularly. I don't think that we're the ones saying like you have to go and perform all of these other you know tasks with your medical doctor at this point like we know that you're working through things you may be on the disordered eating end of things rather than full eating disorder end of things that's different than the ones who are obviously very emaciated in sessions and are listless and not able to you know, have kind of that mental capacity because their body is not being fed. Like there is a line in there somewhere and eating disorder therapists don't roast me on all of this, but as far as this, but I'm trying to use an example here where like there is a line in there. Some people may overstep, but being able to do that is something where, all right, if somebody doesn't have this capacity, when do we bring in family members? When do we bring in other people who can make this decision for them? And how do we, as many people are going to ask here, how do we ethically end those relationships when people are not adherent to the treatment? There's so many questions I have in there because it is complex. And I think there are there's a line, and, and I think at this point we've had, you'll know it when you see it, but I think there's that that element of some folks have very strong viewpoints that that becomes their line. And so, you know, and this is folks who are abdicating too quickly, I guess, but there's that, that element of, well, if a person steps across this line for me, then I'm either going to abdicate or step forward, right? I'm going to either say that's up to you. You're, you are autonomous or I now must control you because you clearly don't understand or you're clearly not adherent or whatever it is, right? And I think mm-hmm. this is this is a scary part of being a therapist is that there's these functional pieces of you must go to the doctor or I'm not going to see you again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or I'm going to allow you to make that decision medically and I'll just be here for you for whatever and and not push anything because you've made that decision. I'm not a medical doctor. And so you you do you. And I'm not adequately caring for using your example, an eating disordered client. Mm. So, you know, you're not writing in your soap note for the 17th consecutive week requested client go to the doctor again. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But part of this and looking at somebody's informed consent in this, I would also maybe suggest for many of us to consider, especially if you are working with populations like this, to also put in informed assent into your documentation and to explain to people, like, if you ever reach a point where there is a question of your capacity to remain informed in treatment, that these are the conditions that we may have to incorporate family members as far as getting your your treatment back on track to restore you to a level of functioning to where you can make these decisions for yourself. And this is out of that informative dimension from the Arietta uh, Valero article. Um, the informative dimension is to have control on their situation in the matter of choosing and to retain, understand, and communicate this to others. That there does become a place where, all right, talking with you, even if you provided informed consent into treatment, what may be best practices is incorporating other family members to help you be able to restore that functioning. To me, I'm, what I'm hearing when you say that is this kind of mental health advanced directive. And I think there's a lot, you know, and, and I think it has other names. Some people would might call it a pretty extensive safety plan. But when folks who have these 
tougher conditions, more challenging uh, sets of symptoms where they do get to a place where they know that they won't be able to make informed decisions in that moment. And there's been enough of a conversation. I think that there are really great advanced directive type documents where someone can say, when I'm in this state, which obviously there would need to be an agreed upon what that looks like, these are the decisions I want to make, or this is the person I'd like to make decisions for me. And I do believe that requires a lot of family. And I think that, I think to me that provides an element of autonomous decision-making because it is when they're in a place to be able to make those decisions, they are making decisions for times when they cannot. Is that what you're talking about in some ways with assent is being able to get to a place of like, I know I may not be able to make decisions for myself, but I'm going to tap this person and give these ideas. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Stuff from SAMHSA on this as well. Yeah, so. and, and IMH. And yeah, that, well, I'll, I'll put some stuff in the show notes that may be helpful for folks. But again, this is taking extra steps at the beginning of treatment. So that way you're not at a place where there is no capacity to do this, that there is some ability for you in your role as a professional to help make sure that your clients are remaining at a level where they can either be restored to or make these informed decisions themselves. But this also ends up becoming something where having the foresight to do this is the point of this conversation that we're having right now. Well, and I, I just want to clarify that may not happen at the beginning of treatment if somebody's coming in a very heightened state of crisis, coming from the hospital or something like that. There may there may only be an element of this. And so it, it's, you know, you've mentioned this before. I think on, I think we've, it's on the recording, but we talked about it beforehand as well. Part of the work is getting them back to a place or getting them to a place where they can get to, you know, a better, a better state of mind to be able to do, you know, like the advanced directives or those kinds of things. But they may not have that when they walk in the, in the, in the session the first time, if they're in a high state of crisis or, or, or having a, a lot of hard things going on. And so I think you may have to make that assessment at the beginning. But yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about is you are responding to the level. You are making a decision yeah. in those moments that you are not respecting patient autonomy in those moments. And I'm advocating that that is the correct decision because yeah. you are doing that assessment to say, okay, because of the situation, I am stepping in with the knowledge that I have as a mental health professional. This is the right thing to do. I am making a paternalistic decision in this moment to respond to your needs. And once we restore you, then we will go back and we will provide you the full buffet of informed consent <laughs> options that you should have when you have the capacity to make that consent. That, yeah. that, that I, I'm glad that you bring that up. I'm, I'm yeah. genuinely glad because that, that is the perfect example of this. I don't love the, the term paternalism. I, I prefer protective, <laughs> but I think, but I think there's, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I won't, no, we don't no, need to get I, into I, that. I, that I think, I think we, I think we do need to get into that okay, distinction okay. because part, part of this is looking at healthcare historically. And one of the big problems up until this 1972 Court of Appeals case is that all healthcare providers were in this very asymmetrical paternalistic position where we know better than you do as I say. Yeah. And I, I think our field has largely done a, a good job over the last 50 years of helping to incorporate clients more and more into their treatment. We have things like recovery oriented systems of care. We have yeah. uh, clients having better access to their notes. We have good faith estimates where all of these things they're more burdensome to us as professionals, but what they do is they give clients the legal right to be able to be involved as much as humanly possible into as many aspects of their healthcare treatment as possible. Our field has done a really good job of that on the legal end of things. I think kind of hidden deep in the background of this is, are we also doing this on the ethical end of things, which is, are we actually evaluating do people in the point of this episode do people have the autonomy to make those decisions at all of these points i think it's also a clinical decision too so it, the ethics and the clinical i think are very entwined just sure. as a comment 
Yes, they are. And I think that that's where we have to draw attention to them because we do sometimes have to make sure that people are informed of all of their decisions. Sometimes that does require us to act paternalistically because we do have some information. I know that there's a lot of negative energy around the term paternalism because it gets equated with that asymmetrical paternalism. This is where I love the term libertarian paternalism. This comes from Richard Thaler and behavioral economics, which is provide people with all of their options. You can influence them a little bit with your knowledge as a professional. They can still make the decision, but you can set them up in ways to still make the decision that is best for their overall healthcare treatment. But that's that that can be fairly manipulative, right? I mean, how you frame it, what you put, you know, like when before we were recording, you talked about kind of the setting up the buffet with the salad first and the sweets at the end. I mean, it does deeply impact the decisions people make. And how do we know if someone is actually autonomously making a decision or being deeply manipulated by how we framed all the options? I don't think that you are randomizing the way that you present information to clients. You don't. Oh, of keep... course not. Of course so, not. So not... Th- there's always going to be some sort of bias there. Like... Of course. That's why. That's why I wanted to bring it up, though, because it's it is something that we can't get rid of. But I think that is the fear for folks who kind of radically allow their clients to diagnose themselves and to determine their treatment is that we we're worried about this huge manipulative power that we have to to encourage our clients to behave in certain ways or to make certain decisions. And mm-hmm. so I think it is it is a reasonable philosophical conversation to have of how okay are we with how manipulative we can be in this situation? And is it about being aware that we're manipulating versus being manipulative based on bias? Like, I feel like I get very worried sometimes that the way that I interact with my clients leads them to live their lives in a certain way. And so I'm, I'm, I try to be very conscious with it while also still, you know, putting my my responsibility towards inf- information and making sure that they're actually able to make autonomous decisions. But but I think it's worth a couple of minutes of conversation about this manipulation and bias. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. And and this is where understanding that there's going to be some there, some bias from all of us. We all have our biases. It's being able to do it in a way that we are upfront about things. It might be helpful in order to provide an example from this, and I, I will give credit that this is stolen from Dr. Ben Caldwell with permission. <laughs> so one of the the scenarios that we bring up is let's say that you are working with a, a client. Um, let's uh, I'm just flat out stealing this. I, I make fun of Dr. Caldwell, all of his client scenarios. It's always centered around somebody named Marco. Okay. Uh, poor, so poor Marco. Marco. Marco is divorced. Marco lives in the same town as his ex-spouse and kids. Marco is your client. Marco is extremely depressed. His kids are reaching an age where their peers are becoming more important. And Marco sees the writing on the wall that he is going to be less and less important to his kids as they progress through middle school and high school. Marco comes to session and says, you know, I'm thinking about moving out of state back to my hometown with my parents, my friends from you know, my previous life. I, I think I'm going to do it. Now, the the question that we often pose to our law and ethics classes on stuff like this is, how much do you respond back to Marco with in this situation? And especially, Katie, as a marriage and family therapist, do you bring up information like, there's a ton of evidence that says you being physically near your kids and being accessible to them ends up in all kinds of literature, 
being more beneficial to them as far as you know things like higher test scores, getting into college, being uh, less involved in truancy and drugs and those kinds of things. Do you bring that kind of stuff up or are you just like, you know what, Marco, good luck. I'll find you a therapist or if I'm in a compact state, we can do things over telehealth. I think this is a great example because I feel like there there's a particular bias towards you got to stay by your kids that is presented with the research that you're describing. So the the truth is biased. I love how you interrupted me before I finish the other part of this. <laughs> I also wonder, and part of this is, uh, oh, maybe I shouldn't say this because it's a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched Ted Lasso, but I've also been watching Ted Lasso about how impacted he was by his dad's suicide, right? And I think about how kids are impacted by a deeply depressed parent and what that could look like. So to me saying, well, there's all this stuff that says you need to sacrifice yourself to stay close to your kids. And I don't know that there's an equal, uh, and I've not looked at the data, I would, I would want to have data, but I'm assuming that there's also elements around how depressed parents impact kids. And so to me, I feel like I wouldn't, I would probably, to the best of my ability, help them to kind of identify what's going through that decision. And, you know, again, referring to the decision-making episode that we did, really talk through all of the options and, and all of the different things. It's not, do I leave or not? There's there's a lot of different pieces to this, you know, but I would deeply go into that decision, but I wouldn't only present the data that supports my the, the decision I think they should make, which is to stay, because I feel like that is biased and that is manipulative. I'm not going to be like, oh, good luck, off you go. I would actually deeply dig into it, but I'm hoping I wouldn't only present data that, that su supports a single decision because I feel like that is too manipulative. So what you're describing is libertarian paternalism. Absolutely. But, I, but the way you described it was, would you tell them this information? It's like, Maybe, but I would have to time it because it would be too much of a like, dude, you got to you got to know this information in the first conversation about moving. I, I wouldn't do that. How how long is this conversation? You know, all right, we need to come up with. All right. If you move and you're depressed away, how much does that affect your kids? If you stay and you're depressed, how much does that affect your kids? If you stay and you fix your depression, how much does that affect your kids? If you stay and you only kind of partially address your depression, how much does that affect your kids? Well, if, and then it's also what do you want for your life and how important is it that you impact your kids in a certain way? You're also making the paternalistic decision that they should care the impact on their kids, right? I mean, there's a lot of moralism here, that moralistic kind of behavior here of like, you should care what happens to your kids. Maybe they don't, Right. And granted, I I would love them to care about their kids, but like there's there's so much here that I feel like you you need to deeply you you can't abdicate the responsibility of helping them make a really informed decision, recognizing that there's probably complexity around the relationship with their kids and their ex spouse. There's complexity around how much can they do based on their depression, because maybe they're deeply depressed, but very <laughs> realistic, or maybe they're deeply depressed and there's some psychosis there. Like there's so much assessment that has to happen. So I think we agree that you have to have some sort of a protective paternalistic, whatever the right word is, to get them to a, a stronger decision-making process. But I think if we're only coming at them with stuff that supports the decision that we're wanting to make, I don't, I feel like that's manipulative and not helping them to become more able to have autonomous decision-making. Ounce of prevention comes back to here's how I work. Yeah, absolutely. Here's, here's what my license type ends up being. You're bringing up, here's what my morals are in therapy. Sure. All of these are things that you and I have advocated for Six years now? Uh, yeah, I can't podcast. believe the podcast has been six years. It feels like it's been like very little time in like since the dawn of eternity. <laughs> but these are consistent with kind of the, not only what kind of therapy do you practice, but what is therapy like with you? And if you are more upfront with, you know, in, you know, I look at the whole person as part of kind of the treatment. I look at how their relationships are also going to be uh, affected by the decisions that they make. In general, 
I'm going to be more biased towards improving those relationships. But that doesn't mean that I'm absolutely like every relationship needs to be improved upon. Some of those are addition by subtraction kinds of things and setting some healthy boundaries by putting limits on other people. But if what we're we're trying to get to as far as you know some ideas for people to take like yes there is a lot of this stuff and whether we're conscious of these biases in presenting this information or not those biases exist and the more open that we are with clients about this is actually true client autonomy and autonomous decision making it's not just taking what clients say up front as unchallengeable fact and just rubber stamping that as a good decision. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. I was just wanting to make sure that we dug deeply into the other side because just saying you have a responsibility to try to help your clients make good decisions don't doesn't get to the other elements. I think for me, there's a lot you can say up front, but if you don't recognize how you're, how you're situated in the world, your bias is going to impact that. There are times when just rubber stamping your client's decision may be better than helping them to make a harmful decision because of, of how strongly you believe that something must happen. And so, so I, I think there's the extremes, you know, one-sided, whatever you called it, paternalism versus complete abdication of a professional responsibility. But there's a whole bunch of gray area in the middle of how we do it. And I think being able to, to do your own work, understand your bias, understand how you work. I mean, some people have a difficulty, a huge difficulty describing it. I mean, that's why there's folks who have whole businesses helping people to write copy and and and, and make you know, you know, it's, it's marketing, but still like being able to clearly understand in the, in the language that your clients understand, like what it is that you do and how you do it. And so this all comes back to deep self-awareness of who you are as a clinician and your willingness to step forward into potentially conflict. If your client disagrees with you into deep clarification and and all of that versus stepping back and saying, well, my client knows themselves. I must allow them to do what they're thinking to do. I'm glad that you bring up kind of that moral piece, going back a couple of things that you said ago. And okay. this is coming from an article called Paternalism, Placebos, and Informed Consent in Psychotherapy, The Challenge of Ethical Disclosure. And this is a 2016 article by Blease Traxel and Gross Holtforth. And one of the things that they conclude is adequate disclosure and informed consent serves the empowerment of patients. It emphasizes the patient's role in making treatment decisions, increasing a sense of ownership over the process. And what is not being said here is fully giving over every decision to clients. It's emphasizing their role in the process, not just giving them, here's the keys to the car. This is helping them to learn how to drive the car. And with that comes a lot of unfortunate education experience that you have as a professional and the ability for you to use it. And I think that in a lot of these examples that we're talking about is that I, and I, I look at this, and one of the questions that my class brought up to me is, is this a generational thing? Is this, you know, many of my students are uh, younger millennials and some of the oldest Gen Zers at this point in grad school, which in a few years, we're going to have to talk about an episode as far as Gen Z as therapists to follow up our <laughs> millennials as therapists episode from a few years ago. But they they did ask, like, is this just part of Gen Z kind of taking um, the idea that everybody has their truths and we are here to support them and to be able to make that uh, something that is part of what they want out of mental health care. And I would say there's a line somewhere in there where are are we supporting clients 
if they don't know what all of their decisions are? How do we present that information to them is the crux of this. We have a responsibility as professionals, as you've outlined, for us to say, have you considered these other things? You know, if we're we're going back to Marco, it's we do have a responsibility. Okay, I'm a I'm a marriage and family therapist. I, I consider the impact of the family in our decision making. And guess what? My license requires me to do that because that's part of the scope of practice. That's why we have an MFT license versus a PCC license. You're going to get that bias because that's what the state of California stamps upon me in my role of working. You might not get that from somebody else, but part of the problem is we've all just blended together so much. (laughs) (laughs) But we do have a responsibility to bring this stuff up and the fear that bringing up facts is going to influence people seems to be a minor inconvenience that's actually part of our job. I just am laughing because when I think back to that millennials as therapists episode, that was kind of what I was saying. You were like, but they know more and you got to learn from them. And I now we've, our roles have been reversed. I'm saying we need to learn from our clients. We need to make sure we fully understand their perspective, make sure that they fully have all the knowledge that we have, but recognize we may not have all the knowledge that they have. And you're saying, but we have to give them enough information so they can make decisions. And we need to take, you know, kind of that stance. So it's really interesting because I think both are true. I think they're both possible. <laughs> but- but it's it's funny because like I'm the one that's going, but wait, we have to give them agency. Well, I'm not saying you're you're not saying this, but like we have to like fully be aware of their reality. And you're saying, but they need to be aware of other reality. <laughs> I, I think we need to go back and re-listen to that episode together because I don't remember that. But uh, well, I kept saying you need to give uh, supervisees enough information to be able to do the job, and sometimes they need more structure than. Uh, I okay. think I think we need to go back and listen to that episode together and do a commentary on it for our Patreon members. So, okay. Okay. Uh, but I think that in trying to make sense of this, there's a lot of laws that tell us here's where where patient autonomy is part of the decision making process that we're giving in a lot of these examples is where autonomy may not exist and it's being able to convey that as part of your decision making process and again i don't think a lot of people are doing that consciously i think that we are trained whether it's experience the community mental health people who are making those like decisions where it's like, all right, this is a, you know, day where I'm reacting to an actual crisis that's going on that was not planned for. Therefore, I'm stepping in in certain ways is different than, all right, here's, you know, private practice high up in a expensive office building where we're, you know, talking about existentialism in philosophical (laughs) sorts of ways. Yes, there are fundamental differences there. And those clients should be treated differently in those moments where the autonomy levels are different. I think the fear of stepping in is based on, you know, law and ethics professors being like, you can be sued for anything, but (laughs) (laughs) good law and ethics professors are, are going to say, good decision-making is your best defense. Like, if you accept, like, any anything can be a lawsuit, your thought process going into these things and your documentation of that thought process, hey, I don't feel that this client has autonomy in this particular moment because of X, Y, and Z. That's why we're making this decision. That's why we are able to tell, if we go back to the eating disorder clients, here is how this was explained to clients. We need to restore you to this level of uh, autonomous decision-making before we can continue treatment. This is not, I'm withholding treatment from you because you are not able to participate. This is more of, we have to restore you to a level of functioning in order to be able to do treatment in the capacity that I can provide it to you. It may be two different ways of saying the same thing, but one leads to patient autonomy. 
the other, the I'm withholding from you, is the incredibly asymmetrical paternalism. But it's with the goal of restoring patient autonomy first that I'm emphasizing. I think there's a, probably a whole other episode on how we communicate those things because I've I've heard, especially within the eating disorder community, that there are clients who cannot get treatment because their eating disorder is so bad. So that's a whole other conversation. But when you were talking, I feel like a good sister episode is the defensive therapy practices episode. So I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes because I think there's there's the abdication, but then there's also the full stepping forward of... I'm going to be completely 100% defensive. And maybe those are not opposites. I think that there's some that are very much on the same page. But it just is very interesting because we have a lot of decisions that we're making. And I see that there's, you know, out in the world, people think, oh, well, a therapist just gets paid to listen to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is, I mean, this is the stuff, right? This is the how do we help our client get to a place where they can fully make autonomous decisions in treatment in their life and feel confident in them, then feel confident that they're doing that in a healthy way and how they define health. But I think there's that that element of so much nuance based on whether it's generational differences, cultural differences, privilege differences about how much as a therapist am I supposed to in, you know, encourage decisions to go a different way or impact their decision making and when that I think this conversation has been very helpful with that. But I'm sure there's going to be more questions and conversation that comes from this. And so I really hope that as a as a result of this, we get folks who are wanting to come into like a Q&A with us and with like our Patreon Q&As or, or coffee hours. So we can actually dig into this because I think people have opinions on this. And, and there's stuff because the two of us have our own perspectives that we've missed, I'm sure. And so to me, I'd love to have like real life conversations, whether it's in social media or, or in person with our Patreon folks or in person on video, because I think that there's so much to this. Like you said before, and, and I mentioned as well, like this is bigger than I think we give credit to because it is so poorly defined in our ethics codes or and it's just a, a passing sentence. And so I've, I've enjoyed this conversation clearly because we've been both very lively about this, but I, I just feel like there's, there's a lot that um, probably will come from this. So I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Send us emails or, or, you know, shoot us additional questions on social media or join our Patreon so that you can join our actual real conversations. You can find our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. We'll include our list of references there. Follow the directions at the intro and the outro of the episode for how you can get your CE information. Follow us on our social media. Join our Facebook group, The Modern Therapist Group. And like we've mentioned a couple of times, our Patreon supporters do get some extra benefits. So if that's another way that you want to support us, you can do it through there or buy me a coffee. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Brunoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like one unit of continuing education for listening to this episode, go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, purchase this course, and pass the post-test. A CE certificate will appear in your profile once you've successfully completed the steps. Once again, that's moderntherapistcommunity.com. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 